Well, hello, Banner Church. Uh, we are so happy that you are with us here this morning. My name is Jamin Metcalf. I'm a volunteer here at Banner Church. Oh, that, oh, it's not that exciting. Calm down, calm down. Oh, that, oh, I'm blushing, I'm blushing. Um, <laughs> uh, I, am, I am just a volunteer here at Banner Church, um, but uh, Josh uh, did ask me this week to come and to deliver a sermon. We are still in the midst of our Angels and Demons series, but of course, as many of you know, this was a crazy week. How many of you are just exhausted from some of the stuff going on this week, just on your TV, right? I know, I, and I know that I am too. There's so much controversy around us, vitriol, hatred. There's these battles going on, cage fights, it seems like, on our TVs over political controversies, uh, over this election, over the pandemic, over racial reconciliation and, and racial tensions. There are so many things that are just berating us over and over in our culture and in our politics right now that it's hard to just feel stable. Does anyone feel that? Like your anxiety is heightened? I, I've been feeling it all year, as I'm sure many of you have. Um, and this year, this is really uh, kind of a funny happenstance that happened to me this year. I, uh, in the middle of all this, right, you know, the pandemic's coming down, I started the school year in August. I'm a teacher. And I was given a class called Rhetoric in the American Tradition. Brand new course at my school talking about political speech giving in American history. So, I took on the task with a lot of weightiness this year, knowing just how difficult it is for us as a country to talk with one another about things that we disagree about. And I knew I had students in my class from all sorts of different faith backgrounds, political backgrounds, different leanings, and they're all seniors, so they're just on the verge of being able to vote this year. And I knew the tensions were high. And so we came into the class and I said, guys, listen, I am as a teacher, when we go through this, I am not gonna tell you what to think politically. That is not my job. My job is to show you how people have talked about politics in the past, and I'm going to just help you to understand how you can continue to have good, productive conversations about these things today. I told them that the most important thing I want you to learn in this class is this. If we cannot talk with one another, then the only thing we can resort to is fists and swords and guns. And that's a dark moment. And so we need to be able to speak with one another. Now, here's how this played out. Just a few months into it, we decided, I knew that the political, uh, uh, the, the presidential debates were coming up. And so I had an idea. I said, hey, before these debates happen, as a class, let's watch the first ever televised presidential debate in American history. It was televised in 1960. It was between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy. And in my class, we watched the whole thing, hour and a half long. We analyzed it, we studied it. It's a really interesting debate. And then I told my students, all right guys, we had fun studying this. This is really cool, fascinating piece of history. Tonight, I want you to watch the first presidential debate as extra credit and analyze that one. Oh man, 
it was a mistake. <laughs> Came into class the next day, and I, I, have to t I, I, I have to tell you, I was embarrassed to come in front of my classroom and just say, well, that's not what I want to teach you guys. I'm sorry. I, I want to teach you how to talk productively. I mean, how many of you watched that debate and you just were cringing the whole time? It doesn't matter which way you lean politically. Everybody was like, oh, no, this is not right. So uh, why am I telling you all this? Well, I think that in this time of contention and disagreement and, and all of these things going on politically and culturally around us as a church, even though all of us in this room have different political views, we need to figure out where as Christians can we find common ground. Okay, here's the big question I want to ask today. As followers of Christ... How ought we to react and engage with political and cultural controversies? As followers of Christ, how ought we to react and engage with political and cultural controversies around us? Now, this is difficult. I have to tell you, in writing this sermon, this is the most difficult sermon I've ever written. And I want to tell you from the outset a few things I'm not going to try to do in this sermon. Just like how I told my class, my job is not to tell you what to think politically, I'm going to say the same thing right here. It is not this church's job to endorse a political candidate, to endorse a political party, or a political ideology, or a political policy, or a certain law. It is not our job. It is not what we are here to do. We are here to encourage you to experience the freedom and power of Jesus Christ and to see transformation in your heart, in your community, in your family, and then on and on outwards. That is our job. So today, even though we're going to try to kind of bring some of these ideas together of really controversial things, I have to tell you from the outset, my job is not to tell you who you should have voted for in the last election. It is not to tell you which political party to support. It is not my job, and I'm not going to do it. Let's start with this really quickly. Uh, the word politics actually comes from a Greek word. Those of you who know me know I love to find the origins of words. I'm an etymology nerd. The etymology of politics comes from the Greek word politike, and it means discussing issues of a city or a community. It comes from the Greek root word polis, which means city. So when we talk about politics, all we're talking about is how do we live well as a community? And Jesus says lots of things about how to live well as a community, right? He gives us a lot of information about this, and we need to take heed of it as Christians. It's really important. Now, over the last several weeks, we've been going through this series on angels and demons, and I actually think that our whole series on angels and demons is a really good starting point, a really good foundation for discussing this particular topic. And I'll, I'll kind of go into what I mean. But first, could you open your Bibles with me really quick to our verse for today? We're going to be looking at Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. Go ahead and open up your Bibles either on your phones or if you have physical ones. Open those up. Jeremiah chapter 29. This is going to be our verse for today. Now, whenever we go to the Old Testament, uh, we really do have to give some context to what's going on. 
in verses there. Otherwise, you're going to be totally lost. So let me catch you up to speed with the story that surrounds this verse that I'm going to be reading. In the 6th century BC, the kingdom of Israel was in a lot of trouble. Surrounding the kingdom of Israel were all sorts of superpowers, empires, that were out to get them. That were battling with one another to take control of the whole Near Eastern region. You had the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Egyptian Empire, all duking it out, trying to figure out who is going to be the person in power and in control. And caught in the middle of this controversy is the little kingdom of Israel on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They are not a big major player. They are pawns in this game. Okay? Now, there was a lot of controversy in Israel because a lot of the people thought, especially the kings there, the leaders, they said, if we don't support one of these kingdoms and alliance ourselves with them, then we could get run over and bulldozed by the other empires as they fight with each other. But they're told by a prophet at the time, they're told by Jeremiah and some of their other prophets as well, don't put your trust in any political leader. Don't put your trust in any other false gods, false teachings, or any other kingdom or army or power. I am the Lord and I am all that you need. That's what they're told. Trust in me. But if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know the Israelites rarely follow the advice of the prophets. So the kings of Israel alliance themselves with some of those different kingdoms. And because of this, Jeremiah comes to them and he says, You wicked people, you have taken your trust away from the Lord your God who delivered you from Egypt and gave you this land. And you've put your trust in the kings of Egypt? You've put your trust in these false gods? Here's your punishment. Since you've put your trust in the false gods, I will deliver you to the false gods. Since you put your trust in kings, I'll let the kings have you. I'll let them control you. And what ends up happening is that Israel is conquered and the people of Judah, the southern part of Israel, are deported to the kingdom of Babylon. Almost the entire population is taken, ripped from their homes, taken as prisoners to a foreign land hundreds of miles away. And so the people are there. They land in Babylon. They realize what they've done is wrong, and they begin to repent, and they call to the Lord to deliver them, and they write a letter back to the prophet Jeremiah who had told them that this would happen, and they said, what do we do now? What do we do? We haven't put our these kings, and now we've been delivered to them. What do we do? And the verse I want to read to you today is the letter that Jeremiah wrote to those exiles. So read this with me. This is Jeremiah 29, verse 4 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. Sit with that for a second. 
build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. There are three biblical truths that I think can be drawn from that passage of Scripture that can help center us as Christians to think about, react, and engage with controversial issues in our world at the moment. Here are the three principles. You ready for these? All right. If you're ready for them, I do this with my students all the time. If you're ready for them, give me a signal that you're ready by showing me a fancy pinky. I love it. Yes. Just shows me you're paying attention. All right. Number one, first biblical truth that can help us. We are exiles in a world ruled by dark spiritual powers. Biblical truth number two, we are citizens. Of God's heavenly kingdom. And biblical truth number three. Because we are exiles and because we're citizens. We must work to transform our communities from the inside out. Not from the outside in. Let's take that first one really quickly. We are exiles in a, ruled world, a world ruled by dark spiritual powers. I think that in many ways, our status, even in the 21st century as Christians, is exiles just like how the Israelites were exiles in Babylon at the time. I think that it really we're not so different on a spiritual level, not on a physical level, not in a political level necessarily, but on a spiritual level, level we are exiles from what we were meant to be. And, and here's what I mean. We have to recognize that evil and suffering in our world, as we've been discussing in our Angels and Demons series, is not merely a physical reality, but a spiritual reality over us. The evil of our world, the evil in your heart, the evil that you see on the streets, the evil that you see from uh, it, it within communities, the division, the vitriol, this is a spiritual battle as well as a physical battle. There's something going on here. Uh, Pastor Josh took us through last week. He was telling us about Genesis and about how we were exiled from the Garden of Eden. 
Adam and Eve took the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they made that rebellion against God, they separated themselves from him. And they were sent out, exiled from perfect union with God. And the whole rest of the Bible, if you look at it, the storyline is God trying to say, you are exiled people, but I want you back. And he brings them back in his grace, and then they rebel again, and they're exiled. And he brings them back in his grace, and they rebel again, and they're exiled. And he brings them back again, and again, and again, until finally there's a culmination, and we'll get to that culmination in just a second. But our touchstone verse for this series has been Ephesians 6.12. You guys just saw it on the screens during that video. And here's what Paul says to the church in Ephesians. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let me tell you something today. Can we say this outright, that God is so much more concerned where, where, with where you're sending your prayers than when, with where you're sending your ballots? God is so much more concerned with who you advocate for in your heart than who you did with a pen on that paper this last week. This is not a battle of flesh and blood that we are engaged in as Christians, but a battle of powers and principalities of a dark world. Now, heres I don't want you to be confused by this. Here's what I'm not saying by this. I am not saying that any one candidate or any one party or any one person that's been in the news lately is uh, a dark spiritual power. <laughs> no. No. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the world itself, all of us in the world, have been enslaved in a thousand different ways to dark spiritual powers, and it is only the grace of God that can deliver us from it. Now, this may sound strange to us, but it's so grounded in biblical reality, and I think, too, that we can see it when we look very carefully at what's going on in our world. So go to one more verse with me. We're going to look at Romans chapter 1, verse 21 through 25. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 21 through 25. This is Paul speaking to the church, and he talks about how people were delivered over to powers and principalities in our world. He says, for although they, meaning all of us, knew that knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. 
Now, obviously, we can see this. When you, when you look back at those times, this is obvious. Paul is writing at a time when the Roman Empire was dominating over the whole known world, all around the Mediterranean where the first Christians lived. And what did the Romans worship? They worshiped gods and goddesses of sexuality, gods and goddesses of money, gods and goddesses of military might. Those were their gods that they worshiped. They went by names like Ares and Aphrodite. In the Near East, they went by names like Ishtar and Moloch and Baal. And you may say today, well, come on, come on, Jamin. Wait, today, you know, we're in the modern West. Nobody's running around worshiping idols here. What are you talking about? No one's worshiping these idols. <sighs> we may not have temples to gods of money, but far more Americans spend their Sundays in a mall than in a church. Think about that for a second. Where the treasure of your heart is, uh, where, the where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where, we, where have we put our trust? Where have we put our trust, our security? In false gods, in false teachers. We've put our trust in political parties, put our trust in political systems and in new laws, thinking if only, if only that person would get power, if only that political party would get power, if only this law were passed, then everything would be okay. But it's not true. There's no political party that can transform your heart. There is no political candidate, there is no law that can give you salvation and really promote the full flourishing of your life and mine. None will do it. And we've seen this in our world. I, I, don't, be de I don't mean to be depressing, but uh, you know, this is so common of us to think, well, that was okay for then because people back then were so ignorant and so full of malice and there was so much warfare. But today we're enlightened. We have liberal democracy. Like we're okay now, we got this. Did you know that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history? Historians have tallied this up. Historians have tallied this up. There was a study that was released only a few years ago. And they said that more people were killed in political warfare and genocide in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. We live in a time of darkness. We are exiles in a broken world. We have been exiled from the Garden of Eden, exiled from paradise, exiled from our perfect happiness, which can only be found in our union with God. In times like these, in unprecedented times, as we like to call them, even though I think that they're very precedented, given the tragedies of the 20th century, we're homesick. How many of you feel that? How many of you are homesick? We're homesick ex exiles longing to return to our father like the prodigal son who looked around him in the slop and in the mud with the pigs and said, if I could go back to my father's house, at least I could have food for my belly. 
That's the situation we're in. I know that's a downer. I know that's a downer. Bear with me. Second point. Number one, we're exiles. Second point, it gets brighter. The night is darkest just before the dawn, as they said in Batman. <laughs> we are citizens of heaven. Amen. Despite our exile, God in his abundant grace has made us citizens of heaven, as it says in Philippians chapter 3. We may be exiles in this world today, but because of Christ's death and resurrection, we are no longer of this world. Jeremiah 29, 11 gives us a beautiful picture of this. Jeremiah says to the exiles in Babylon, and I want you to take these words as a prophecy for you too. Because it is intended not just for the Hebrews in exile, but as an image of what God says to us. It says there, and we already read this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. You will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you in exile. God has a rescue plan. You may be living in a world of darkness, but there's a rescue plan, and God is offering his hand to you today. If you have not already taken it, he is reaching his hand to you and saying, Son, daughter, come with me. Perfect happiness is yours. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. This is very reminiscent of what was said to the exiles in Babylon. Um, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following, listen to this, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is Satan, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind but God amen guys but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. To be in but not of the world means that although we still live in a broken world, we are no longer under the authority of that brokenness. We are made alive together with Christ, and now God has commissioned us to spread his kingdom of love and reconciliation to all the nations. 
See, God came to redeem you by grace. And once he redeems you, he says, go and do likewise. Bring this blessing to the rest of the world. It's why he tells his disciples when he teaches them how to pray. Pray this. Let your kingdom come, O Lord. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that brings us to our third point, final point today. You guys still with me? Yeah. Number three, we must work to transform our communities from the inside out, not from the outside in. What do I mean by this? That can be maybe a little confusing, that phrasing. Well, notice, what is the first thing that Jeremiah tells the exiles to do in Babylon? Notice what he says. Does he say in the beginning of that verse, the first thing you need to do is uh, go write on your neighbor's walls about how their politics are reprehensible? I mean, they didn't have Facebook walls, but, you know, they had real walls. Does he say that? No. Does he say, go to Babylon and rebel against the king because he's been oppressing you? No. First thing he says... Build houses, plant gardens, have children. What does he mean? Jeremiah, I think, means this. I don't think it's an accident that those are the first things he tells the people in exile to do. I think what he means is this, and this is a, a correlation with tons of other parts of Scripture. If you really want to transform your community, your city, your nation, it has to begin with your heart and your home. It is our hearts that are broken, not our nation. It's our hearts that are in rebellion. It is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks that your actions flow. It is out of the abundance of the heart that political structures are built for justice or injustice. From the heart, it then extends to the family. From the family, it extends to the neighborhood. From the neighborhood to the city. From the city to the state. From the state to the nation and from the nation to the world. That's what I mean by Transformation comes from the inside out. Delight in the Lord. Delight in his law. And from the abundance of that place in your heart, when you align your will and your desires with him, then your actions will flow. They will do good to the community. This is such a, a, a fundamental principle, church, we need to hear this today. So much of our anxiety around the controversy swimming around us is that we have decided to point fingers at other people and what they're doing wrong, and we've forgotten about the evil that's on our own doorstep. We pointed fingers at other people and said, what you're advocating for is unjust. What you're saying is tyranny. And we forget that we're tyrannizing our own homes. We forget that there's injustice 
just outside of our doorstep, and we're not doing anything about it. So what does Jeremiah say? Build a godly community. <laughs> Build homes. And then, once you begin to build the kingdom of God right here, where you're present, then he says, seek the welfare of the city. Pray unceasingly for the city. Pray for the leaders. Pray for them. We need to hear that today. First and foremost, we are citizens of heaven, not citizens of the United States. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about the good of our society around us. We begin with the heart, we let God transform us, and then we seek justice, we seek reconciliation, we pray for peace in our country, because in praying for that peace, we pray for the good things that God wants for all people. This is where good political engagement flows out. You know what's so fascinating about this letter? I haven't really named any of the people that were exiles there in Babylon, but one of the people that read this letter that was there was a man named Daniel. Do you know, in the course of Daniel's life, as he followed the guidelines of this letter, as he began to seek the Lord in his private time, in his prayer, every morning and every night. The scripture tells us that Daniel prayed three hours every day. He devoted himself to the Lord. It was through this abundance of his devotion to the God that he was able to influence the politics of an empire. He became an advisor to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and when Babylon fell and Persia rose, he became an advisor to Darius, the king of Persia. How incredible is that? How beautiful is that, that God used the people in exile to bring blessings to the world? He wants to do the same for us today. He wants to use you to bring justice to your community. He wants to use you to bring love where there is an absence of love, where there is hatred, where there's division. He wants you to bring that peace. This is a principle Jesus knew very well in Luke 11 when the Pharisees were bickering back and forth about how it is that they should engage with Rome and how they should they think about spirituality and politics and they were posturing with all of their different moralities. Jesus said to them, now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Foolish Pharisees. Why don't you clean the inside, then clean the outside? Why don't you take care of your heart before you point a finger in the face of your neighbor? Romans 12:2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect. I experienced this principle in my own life uh, about a year, was it a year and a half? Yeah, a year and a half ago. 
Uh, I was asked to help chaperone our senior trip at my school to Washington, D.C. And I was really excited. I'm an American history teacher as well as a literature teacher, so I get excited about all the museums. I nerd out a little bit. So it, it was awesome. I, I really loved it. And before I left to go on this trip with all the seniors at my school, I prayed to the Lord, God, I really do want to connect with these students and minister to them. I think that seeing them in this context is a great moment for me to minister to these students, to show them the love of God. And, and this was a truly prayer that was, uh, it was an honest prayer that I was asking God for. Lord, please, please, I want to do good for these students. Open up doors that I can do this. Well, I got on the trip, and our first day, we were heading to go tour the White House. And we're on the train as we go, the public transport there. And I go over to a group of students, and I just start talking to them, just trying to encourage them and, like, pour in their lives and, like, God, you know, your word is good. This is it. This is perfect. And then behind me, I hear a horrible sound. I hear a... And a student runs up to me, and he goes, Mr. Metcalf, Mr. Metcalf, Benji's throwing up on the train. And I was like, oh, no, no. And so I go back... And Benji has thrown up all over the back of a subway train car. I mean, he is sliding around in his own vomit. And I'm like, oh, Benji, what, what are you doing? Come on. And so I, I take Benji, and the rest of the group heads on to the White House. I take him to go get medication, and I'm hanging out with him. And to be honest, I was a little bit annoyed. This kid, Benji, uh, he was a quiet kid. You know, he kind of was off to the side. And I was just frustrated, like, you know, why, why do you have to, you're pulling me away from the group. You're pulling me away from the people I want to minister to. Like, come on, man, what are you doing? I was really frustrated about it. And then the next day, we go to Mount Vernon, uh, George Washington's home. And we're in line getting ready to enter the museum, and I hear a familiar sound. <laughs> and the same student comes up to me, Mr. Metcalf, Mr. Metcalf, Benji's throwing up again. I'm like, oh. For heaven's sake, what is this? So I take Benji to the med bay in the museum. They put him in a room to lay down. They give him some medication. And I'm sitting outside his door. And to be honest, I was really frustrated. I was frustrated. I'm like, you know, for two days now, I have not spent any time with my students. I haven't been able to do any of this work. Like, what, God, like, why aren't you going to open up any doors? And it was only in that moment, I'm a fool for not realizing it earlier, but it was only in that moment that I finally realized the door was open. It was almost like God flicked me on the back of the head and said, come on, idiot, come on. Well, God woke me up, I, and I really did feel a word from the Lord for this kid, and I, I went inside the room where he was sleeping, and he was awake at the, right when I walked in, and um, I just started talking with him. And he started saying to me, he just started opening up to me in a way that I, I, I didn't, it, it was really the Holy Spirit, I believe it. Opening up to me about some of the struggles he's had with his family, some of the personal things he's been going through. And I just listened to him. And then he began to really beat himself up, and he's like, Mr. Metcalf, everybody on this trip hates me because I'm making it so hard for everyone. I'm a nuisance. I'm a nuisance to people on this trip. I just encouraged him. I said, no, no, Benji. It's not the case. 
And I talked with him. Finally, he laid down again and fell asleep. And as he was sleeping, I, I felt like I got a word from the Lord from Denji. And so I took out a piece of paper and I wrote down something on a note card for him. And I won't tell you what it was, but I folded it up and I just put it on the bed stand next to the bed and then walked out and left. I never knew if he actually got the card for months. Whole trip, never brought it up, never heard anything about it. And then a few months later, we're at graduation. Benji walks down the aisle, he gets his diploma, and he goes off. And at the end of the ceremony, he runs up to me in his graduation gown. And he says, Mr. Metcalf, I have to show you something. And he starts lifting up his gown. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> he lifts up his gown. He pulls out his wallet. And he says, I want to show you this. And he takes out that note card. He says, Mr. Metcalf, you have no idea how much this means to me. You had no way of knowing what I was going through at the time, but I've been struggling with clinical depression for the last three years. I've been on medication that my parents put me on. I didn't know if I was going to make it through high school. And he said, you have shown me so much love and understanding, even in the short time I've known you as a teacher. Thank you. You're what got me through this year. If we spend too much time looking and worrying about the big things that are going on, the controversies that are out of our control, we may miss the things that are right on our own doorstep. There's a Christian author that lived in Russia during the time of the communist takeover. His name was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he was an incredible man. He was not a Christian for most of his life. He actually was uh, in the Red Army. He fought in World War II on the, on the side of the Russians. Uh, and after the war, during the reign of terror under Joseph Stalin, he was imprisoned and taken to a concentration camp, a, a gulag, as they called them in Russia. And he was put there to work for 10 years, and he, call, he saw unimaginable suffering unimaginable and it woke him up to two realizations one that the utopia that communism was supposed to bring wasn't coming that Russia was wrong to put their trust in it and two that the only hope left for humanity was to turn to God and so he gave his heart to the Lord after he got out of prison, he wrote a book called The Gulag Archipelago where he exposed the ravishings and the terror of the Stalinist regime for the first time to the world. He became an international hero for fighting for the political rights of Ru the Russian people. In 1978, he was asked to give a commencement address at Harvard University, and they asked him to speak on the current political controversies of the day. And everybody who brought him expected Alexander Solzhenitsyn to talk about how great democracy was, how awesome uh, liberal politics had become, how communism was on its way out and democracy was on its way in, that the new age was coming and things were going to be better. That's what people thought he was going to say. But he got up on that stage in front of the most brilliant people 
in our country. And he said to them, the line dividing good and evil doesn't cut through the aisles of your government. It cuts through the hearts of every human being. He went on in the speech to tell them that they had put their trust in false gods. That the promises of their politicians were nothing that could be delivered. That it didn't matter whether you advocated for the left or for the right. That without God, it was nothing but a tower of Babel ready to crumble. And he ends his speech with these words. He ended it with this. He said, today we can no longer look politically to the left or to the right. No one on earth has any other way left but up. Would you stand with me today? close your eyes and bow your heads with me. I just want to pray over you. I believe that there are two types of people in this place that really do need prayer this morning. There's some of you who understand and feel that you are exiled, that you are in a world of darkness and pain and chaos, and you have not found your citizenship in Christ quite yet. If you feel that that's you, and today you want to join the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven, you want to be a part of this redemptive mission, would you raise your hands right now in this place? Thank you. The second group of people I want to pray for today is those of you who you can say truthfully you know you're in exile. You can say truthfully you know you're a citizen of heaven. But you have, in Jesus' words, tried to pick specks out of other people's eyes while forgetting that there's a log in your own. Politically, you've pointed the finger at others and gotten angry at others and forgotten to clean up some of the things in your own life, in your own heart. And I want to give you an opportunity today to begin to seek the Lord for that kind of reconciliation, to seek the Lord to come into your heart, into your home, into your neighborhood, into your city, and that he would begin to do a mighty work of reconciliation and justice. If you feel like that's you, would you raise your hand today with all honesty and all vigor? Lord, we love you. We come before you humbly today seeking the blessings that you have promised us. Just as Jeremiah said to the exiles that, Lord, you know the plans you have for us, plans for our welfare and hope for our future. We hold on to that promise. Today, Lord, we put our trust in you, not in the things of this world. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that right here, right now, you would meet us. You would heal us. You'd bring us peace. In your holy name, Lord.
We look to you for our help. If you'd like to receive prayer today, we're going to have people praying up here at the front. We're going to have a prayer team up here. I want to encourage you in this time of worship, seek the Lord with all of your heart. And if you want to come to the front to receive prayer, do so in faith with bravery coming forward saying, God, I need a new work from you.